Shall we just pray together as we reflect on that little video? You indeed, Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Heavenly Father, in the quietness of this moment, help us to remember all that you are. And please, as we look at this first chapter of Genesis together tonight, would you blow our minds with how big you are, how awesome you are. And would we leave here rejoicing? Would we leave here with a bigger sense of who you are and a smaller sense of who we are? And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would be our teacher, that you would help us to understand things that are difficult and that together we can learn from your word tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see so many of you here tonight um, to start this new series. I think it's a five-week series. We're going to do three weeks, I believe, then there's a break for Easter. Uh, there's no evening service on Easter Sunday, and then uh, we'll come back and do the following two. I hope when you came in, you were given a little handout like this. I've got some really fit people up the front here. So if you haven't got one, can you stick your hand up? They're going to whiz round. Can a couple of you guys do that for me? Uh, this just gives you a bit of an idea of what we're going to try and do over the next few weeks. Um, don't it seems like there's a lot that I know, and partly because there is a lot to look at. We're not going to be looking in detail all those questions, but these are really questions that I think are a reflection of where many of us are at. And lots of them were questions that were asked by the discipleship group um, that Steph and I and, and uh, John and Caroline have been leading over the last year or so. Other questions are questions you've given me, as you've known that we've been preparing for this series. Uh, some are actually questions I've asked, I've got myself, which I'm going to try and look at. Uh, but I hope that this will give you a flavor of what we're going to do in the last few weeks. Uh, but basically the idea is to look at Genesis, uh, chapters 1 and 2, five different ways. So we're going to keep coming back to different passages. I'm not going to sort of just preach through it like you would normally perhaps expect. We're going to look at it in different ways. But as you look at that little sheet there, I just want to give you a little flavor of the focus for every week, just to um, whet your appetites a little bit. Um, this week we're going to really be looking at Genesis chapter 1 from a theological point of view. In other words... What does Genesis 1 teach us about who God is? And that's just going to be the single focus. Uh, next week, we're going to look at this more difficult subject, the one that perhaps we will have disagreement amongst ourselves in, in terms of uh, the seven days that divide the earth. And particularly going to focus in that week on some of the tools, I hope, that will help us to interpret the Bible um, accurately and faithfully. So that will get us stuck in, and there'll be some uh, juicy stuff in there for us to uh, get stuck into, perhaps to disagree over. The third week, um, we're going to look at this question of science and faith. I know that's a big question that many of us have. We also have friends who, for whom this is a big sticking point, and perhaps often the reason why people um, don't think that they can be Christians. So we're going to look here at a number of kind of issues surrounding the ideas of science and faith, but particularly looking at the authority of the Bible and what that means for this science versus faith. And then after Easter, we're going to look at um, God made man in his own, own image. This week's really focusing on God. In four weeks' time, we're going to be focusing on ourselves, on mankind, and what the Bible says about you and I. And then the final week, um, we're going to look at the tree of life. But rather than focusing in detail, we're going to do a kind of whistle-stop tour of the whole Bible, starting obviously in Genesis 1 and 2, but seeing what is so significant about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, and why does that um, have huge significance all the way through the Bible? So it's kind of um, rather like sort of eggs five ways. It's Genesis 1 and 2, five ways. Um, I hope it will be helpful for us. 
Um, just by way of introduction, um, I guess I'm excited about this series. I remember a time in 2008, I was in Uganda, and I was taking a group of university students out to work in Uganda, and we had a day off. And I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in a coffee shop. Um, it had been a really demanding trip, so I sat there and probably drank three or four or five coffees. I was there most of the day. I don't know why, but I really felt convicted to read Genesis and 1 and 2 very, very slowly, because I read it tons of times. And I spent the whole morning in this cafe just reading and reading and reading and reading. I didn't have any books or commentaries. I just had the Bible. And it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life when I allowed these really familiar chapters to come alive. And I recognized that there was just so much truth buried in a relatively small amount of place, space. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, I got very excited about Genesis 1. I've done a lot of thinking and reading on it since, and it's something I really believe we need to think about. But three reasons why I'm really excited about this series. The first one is, in many ways, Genesis 1 and 2 is foundational um, for understanding our place in God's world. Uh, as one person has put it, the doctrine of creation, that's the, the truths the Bible teaches about creation, gives us a right perspective of who God is and who we are. Uh, another writer has said that only when we understand who we are can we begin to understand who God is. Because Genesis 1 and 2 makes it very clear that God and you and I are very, very different. The second reason is I think that Genesis 1 and 2 are really foundational in understanding the whole of the Bible. And the more you get to grips with your whole Bible, the more you'll recognize all the links that go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So the better we understand them, I hope and pray, the better we'll understand much of what comes through the rest of the Bible. And thirdly, because really in our culture, and we've done some evening series on this previously, but the Bible's under attack, particularly the issue of authority, the authority of the Bible. And I hope that as we look at this together, we can encourage each other to have more and more confidence in the Bible. Um, now, some of the weeks, particularly perhaps next week and the week after, there may be that we have disagreements within the room. And there is a certain scope, I'm going to suggest, for disagreement on certain issues within Genesis. Some things aren't as clear as we might like. Um, I remember reading once, uh, be a critic of unbelief or disagreement, but be a sympathetic critic. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, the writer's saying, you know, think carefully for yourself and challenge other people if they've got different views, but be sympathetic because we all come to the Bible with our own backgrounds, with our own questions, with our own understanding. And I really hope that as we perhaps during a bit of the Q&A over the next few weeks, uh, if there's any disagreement, we do it with real love and grace, uh, with a desire to help each other to learn, uh, and with a real humility. Well, I wonder if you think back to that little video that we were watching earlier. Um, can you see God in all that he's made? I wonder when you go outside and you see that beautiful sunset or that rainbow in the sky, is your first thought, God? For some, this comes quite naturally, I think. Some people just love being in the outdoors, and it's a place where they really feel they can connect with God and all that he's made. For others, perhaps we can be wowed by creation, but our first thoughts aren't with God. Here's a verse from uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is talking about creation. He declares, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all mankind are without excuse. So Paul's making a declaration that just from physical creation alone, people made in his image have no reason to question his existence. 
And yet, two verses before, Paul has said that humanity has suppressed the truth in their wickedness. So though God has given us an awareness of creation, it's perfectly possible that plenty of people will suppress that truth and perhaps will enjoy creation with no acknowledgement of a creator. I'll give an example of this. Uh, 6th of August, 1961, there was a famous Russian cosmonaut called Titov. He was the second man to orbit the Earth. When he landed, he famously remarked and said, I've been to the heavens, and I didn't see God or any evidence of him. Well, seven years later, Apollo 8, the American astronauts, 1968, they were the first humans to orbit the moon. And you know when they were up in space, they sent a message back to America. And do you know what the message was? Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Just the words. And the amazing thing is, here are two groups of people who effectively saw the same stuff. One man said, I don't see God in it at all. And another group of men were completely wowed by what they saw, and they saw God in it. And that's really what Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 is all about. That there is a truth, there is an awareness built within us of God, but we can suppress that truth and choose to ignore it. One of my favorite writers, Philip Yancey, who's an American journalist and pastor, he said, it's a terrible thing to be awed and have no one to thank. You know, when you see that beautiful sunset or that sunrise or you're in the mountains or you see that plant in your garden and you go, wow, look at that. Isn't it terrible that you could perhaps come to a conclusion, well, that's there just by an accident and I've got no one to thank for it. It's just a complete accident. Well, what we're going to do over the next, uh, next little bit is um, focus just in on three phrases uh, that come in uh, Genesis. Rather than looking in great detail, we're just going to focus on three phrases. Now, I've had a complete shocker because I have here two pages of the same page and none of the other page. So this is going to be interesting. But I have Genesis 1, so we're okay. So if we turn up Genesis 1, I'll see how well I've uh, remembered what I was going to look at together. When I read Genesis chapter 1, uh, the very first... There's no point even looking at this, it's not even to help me. Here we go. When I look at Genesis 1, the very first verse is one I often skip over. And I want us just to focus to start with on this very first verse. And the first four words. In the beginning, God... Now, when I read Genesis, I would naturally just run through that. Oh, yeah, God. And I would just carry on reading. He created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I want us to center in and focus on this one verse uh, very carefully. In the beginning, God. What is the writer telling us right in these first four words? The first thing he seems to be assuming is that God exists There's not a kind of debate or an explanation, in the beginning, God, and this is why. He just says, in the beginning, God. The writer begins by declaring that God exists. It's quite convenient, isn't it, uh, to be an atheist? I'll tell you why. If you take the position of being an atheist, it will go the other way. Uh, If you you, um, believe that there is, if you see something that's being created and you recognize that there's a creator, then you have to acknowledge that you were created. And if you acknowledge that you were created, it would make sense that you and I would have to be answerable to the one who created us. 
So can you see why it's actually quite convenient just to say, oh, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God? Because you then haven't got to deal with him, you haven't got to answer to him. But the writer here begins and says, in the beginning, God. We're going to look in weeks two and three um, at um, some amazing sort of statistics. But statistically speaking, if you just look in terms of probability, to not believe in God takes far greater faith than to believe in him. Just if you look from a mathematical, statistical point of view. And yet so many will just say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. And I want to graciously, I hope, challenge that as a false understanding. It may be convenient to say God doesn't exist, but actually uh, not that wise when you look at the statistics of evidence for him. We'll come back to that in a few weeks' time. So the writer assumes the existence of God. Notice something else. He assumes that God is eternal. In the beginning, God. What's he saying there? He's saying that before anything else came into being, God was. I might have a verse here which might help me. Here we go. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist is really declaring the same thing that the writer of Genesis is declaring in verse 1, that God has always existed. There might be another verse coming up. You know that great verse in Exodus where uh, God and Moses meet and Moses is told by God, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is my name. It's a strange name, isn't it? You're called Timo, you're called Matthew, you're called Lydia. Well, God calls himself in one place, I am. Now, why does he do that? Because he's declaring to the world that he is a God who always has been, a God who always will be, a God who is that is an amazing declaration. Not only that, he's declaring that he is a God who is the creator of life. There's two great verses here. One from John chapter 5. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The, the ability God has to be in the beginning God before anything else is because God sustains himself. God isn't dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. Think about that. That's astonishing. And uh, I think it was read earlier in, in one of the little interludes between the songs, Colossians 1.17, where Paul declares, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These are just absolutely awesome truths. In the beginning, God... Could I try and remember where we're going now? Fourth thing. You may not see this from your English translation, but that word there, God, is a Hebrew word, Elohim, and that word is plural. So not only do we know that God exists, not only do we learn that God has always existed, not only do we learn that God is the giver of life, but we see that God exists as Trinity, a plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why is that significant? We're going to see in week four that God created you and I in his image. And he created us to relate to us. And the very reason that God is a God who created us to be relational beings and a God who wants to relate to us is because he himself is relational in his very essence. Not just relational in the way that he reacts and responds to the people he's made, but God is relationship. Uh, Think about love. 
Love only exists when it's shared or participated in. You, you express love to another, don't you? Well, in uh, 1 John, in the back of the Bible, it says God is love. Well, God is love in himself. Before he even expresses love to another, he exists in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why when there was separation of Father and Son at the cross, it was so horrific for Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this eternal bond, this unity that exists within the Godhead, for that moment was separated for the first time in eternity. Because... In the beginning, God. Now, I know that's just one verse, but I want us to see that there is so much packed into one single verse, and it's absolutely astonishing when we stop to reflect on it. Let's see where we're going next. That might help me. Can we click on? You might have to click for me because I don't think this is working so well. Let's go again. If you just stick it up, I'll pop it on. Great. In the begot- just stop there, that's great. Second thing I want you to notice, just look at the, the first verse, second half. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this chap here, does anyone know who that is? I think some of you have got it. Newton, Isaac Newton, great. Uh, I can't remember the exact dates of when he lived because that was uh, written down. Uh, he lived sometime a long time ago. Um, Isaac Newton um, was a very, very influential scientist. He was also a Christian. He was the man who discovered gravity. And the story's told, I don't know if this is true or just an anecdote, but the story's told that an atheist friend walked into his laboratory and Newton had, had devised and put together this really um, intricate um, a model of the solar system which he was using to test his gravitational theories and apparently his atheist friend walked in and goes wow that's amazing who made it and newton with a slight smile on his face said oh no one made it it just appeared <laughs> and of course the atheist friend responds as you and i would well, of course that couldn't have happened someone had to create it well here we're just talking about a model in newton's laboratory and the atheist could not possibly conceive that this model just came into being and yet isn't it staggering that so many people can believe that this world with all those amazing pictures we saw earlier came into the world by chance absolutely amazing in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and one of the things that does for us is it reminds us of how powerful god is here we have god declaring a truth to his people in isaiah 46 and he says to whom will you compare me or count my equal? To whom will you liken me? I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. There is a God, and he is the creator, the only creator. Similarly, here's a a verse from the book of Jeremiah. God speaks to Jeremiah, and he's speaking of, at this point, God's people who have kind of prostituted themselves to false gods. And here, they have worshipped created things. And he declares this, These gods who did not make the heavens and earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. And I want you to notice something about the creation. Here's a, a little summary of Genesis chapter 1. Do you notice the incredible symmetry from days 1 to 3 and days 4 to 6? In the first three days, God created stuff. He formed the world. In the second three days, he filled the stuff that he had made. He creates the light and the dark, day one, which corresponds to day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, he creates the sea and the sky. Day five, the creatures and the birds. Day three, he creates land and vegetation. Day six, the creatures and human beings who live on that land and feed off that vegetation. What is the writer who's written Genesis trying to see it show us? He's trying to show us that there is design and order in creation. If you know anything about science, if you have a science background, you'll know how amazingly intricate and complex creation is. And the writer here, in this amazing poetic language, as he describes the creation of the world, is saying there's symmetry in the world, there's design, there's created order. The world was not a mistake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the third little verse I want us to look at is in verse 3. We're back on track now, so we're okay. Uh, Verse 3 Um, And God said, let there be light. There's something I'd love us to see in this incredible verse. And it's the astounding power of God's word. Go back to verse 2, the verse just before this one. How does the writer describe the earth? The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What's that a picture of? Chaos, isn't it? And darkness. It was complete mess. But then notice verse 3. It says, and God said, dot, 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 and there was. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Every time I think about this and I read this verse, it completely astounds me. God can just speak into chaos and darkness and the world became his world. And what the writer is trying to declare to us as we read this passage is he's trying to tell us that God's word is effectual. You imagine uh, God stood up on this first day and he declared, let there be light. Well, can you imagine if the chaos, if the uh, void and the darkness spoke back at him and go, not today, God. I don't really feel like being created today. It would be a bit like Jesus, wouldn't it? When he stands up in the boat, Mark chapter four, the great storm on the lake. Quiet, be still. And the lake just says, not today, God. It can't happen. The astounding power of God's word is he can speak into darkness. He can speak into the void, the chaos. Let there be and there was. And that's the pattern you see all the way through Genesis chapter 1, isn't there? Never does creation answer back to God. God just creates by speaking. But the amazing thing I'd like us to focus on, that word create in verse 1, the writer's using that not just to tell us how the world was created but also in part to tell us how God works, in part how preaching works. 
You might be familiar with that amazing passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is wrestling with how hard it is to turn someone who has a heart that is hard towards God, that doesn't believe in him, and turn that person to faith. And what does Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? He says, the God who declared, let there be light, shone his light into our hearts so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the writer there, Paul, is going right back to creation. He's taking the very thing that God said to create the whole world, and he's using that phrase here to describe the same creative power that's needed to open a person's eyes so they can understand who he is. You cannot persuade a person to become a Christian just by being clever and articulating yourself well. It takes the power of God, the creative power of God. And just as in creation, Genesis chapter 1, there was darkness and there was a void, and God spoke... And that brought order and it brought light. So when God speaks to us through his word, he speaks into the darkness and chaos of our heart and he can bring forth light and truth. These verses are staggering because they teach us incredible things about who God is. We're just going to pause there for a moment. There's a lot just in two verses. Um... I wanted to focus on them because I think they set up the whole of Genesis 1 and 2. But it'd be just nice if there's anyone who's got any questions on some of this. It can be anything from sort of Genesis chapter 1, but anything that puzzles you, anything you're not sure about, it'd be lovely to have one or two questions. I'm going to ask Timo to be my runner. Can you run around with this fella? If anyone's got a question, you can uh, give it to them and we can hear them. Irene's got one. It's not actually a question, but I didn't quite hear what you said, so I'd like you to explain it again. You, you said the word Elihim, it meant... Uh, the, the, it's a Hebrew word, Elohim, and it means yes, God. Sorry. It means God. Did you say it meant more than one person? Um, it's a word that um, is in the plural. Sorry, so say it again? It's a word that's in the plural. Right. So it's not referring to singular God, it's referring to plural God. That's so what I missed. Right back in Genesis 1 verse 1, we see that God exists as Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Timo. Yeah, great, you have to shout and then I'll repeat it. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, you notice in verse 2... Uh, thank you. Um, uh, when we talked about God speaking, he's not a physical man, so does it mean sort of a verbalising like I'm talking to you? What's it mean to sort of speak and then creation came into being? Um, Timmy, there'll be another question, so you pause and hang on. Well done. Um, verse 2 talks about, um, I'll read verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the s- surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, that word spirit there is a, a word ruach, I think. It's a word that talks about God's spirit. And it's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Uh, sorry, in, in Genesis 2, where it talks about God breathing into the nostrils of Adam to make him a living being. So it's a word, it's really talking about the spirit of God that is the life giver. If you know um, Ezekiel chapter seven, uh, 37, the valley of dry bones... There were these dry bones, they obviously couldn't live, there was nothing, no life in them, and it talks about the Spirit of God being breathed over these dry bones, and they became living beings. So I think here in Genesis 1, where it talks about God speaking, it's something about the creative, life-giving power of his Spirit that goes out. Um, I don't think we know more than that in terms of what it means. We know that God is a speaking God, we know he's a communicating God, 
speaking all the way through the Bible, uh, continue to speak to us today. Uh, what kind of, whether this was an audible voice or not, I very much doubt it. I imagine it was sending out his spirit, the life-giving spirit that brought creation into being. Um, beyond that, I don't know. And there might be someone with more wisdom. Perhaps you can help us because you're good on uh, Hebrew words, but far better than I am. Can you take the mic over? It's good when you've got people who are... Well, no, this is not uh, Hebrew um, <coughs> uh, knowledge, but... It, and what, um, <coughs> excuse me. Well, uh, one thing about speech is it's, it's imparting information. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the aspects of creation is the huge amount of structural information that there is. Like, I'm in, in the human cell, and you think of the DNA, mm-hmm. and you think of, you know, the, the billions of combinations of information there are in just every single cell in our bodies. Where did that information come from? Where did that structure come from? I, 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 mean, I think it, you know, God spoke mm. and imparted this information, this structure, to make the world as we see it. So I think that's, that's part of the, the speech of communicating and imparting information and mm. that actually scientists have a real problem in explaining if you think, uh, you know, information theory, mm-hmm. where, you know, where, where did all the information in every cell of our body come mm-hmm. from? came from God. Yeah, thank you, Philip. Yeah, we're going to look at that in uh, week three with the whole science thing. Um, information often being the big thing that Christian scientists turn to um, to prove the existence of God. It's this thing of uh, irreducible diversity. You can keep going back as far as you want, but eventually it gets to a point where you think, but what created this? Where's that info come from? Um, just like the atheist who walked into Newton's laboratory, that model just couldn't have come into existence uh, on a far greater scale. Surely our world was created. Yeah. A couple more questions, and then we'll just move on to our last thing we're going to look at together. Do we know who wrote Genesis, and does it matter who wrote it? Just about to come to that. Thank you. That's the next question. Well done, Rob. That is there. Uh, what was there before the beginning? That's the question. What was there before the beginning? Um, God was. In the beginning, God. Uh, we see the same thing um, pictured, don't we, in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, speaking of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, what was there? Um, well, the, this verse here says that there was nothing. There was God. Um, the earth was formless and empty. Some, some people, some, I think, faithful scholars think there's a big gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that God always existed, and then later, sort of, God's creation and bringing to bear of this earth happened. Uh, we'll come to that uh, uh, next week and the week after. But I think, uh, I don't really know the exact answer what was there, but I do know that God was there, because this verse tells us. But actually, think about what we looked at earlier in terms of who God is. Uh, God's not dependent on anyone for anything. Uh, God exists as perfect relationship in self and self. He doesn't crave relationship with anyone else. He doesn't need it because he is relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. Indeed, he's the source of relationship. He's the source of life. He's the source of love. So presumably before the world as we know it was created, God just was. Uh, that is utterly mind-blowing. Um, I think I've just recalled now something I did have written down, which I forgot. But I was going to say earlier, if your mind is baffled with that truth, 
in the beginning God was before everything else. And you just go, what? Um, I was just going to encourage you, let your mind just be totally baffled by that. Um, Augustine was the uh, early church father, and he famously said, um, I've got to remember now, what did he famously say? <laughs> if it's God, no, sorry, he said, if you can understand it, it's not God. He's just saying you cannot fully comprehend who God is. And it's good to get a measure of who God is, but you'll never fully understand. Um, there was another bloke, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name, but he said, uh, Francis Schaeffer, great theologian, great pastor, he said, you and I need to distinguish the difference between true knowledge and exhaustive knowledge. God has exhaustive knowledge. He cannot learn anything. He knows everything. But you and I, made in his image, can have true knowledge. That means that what we know of him, however limited it is, can be truly knowledge of him. Knowledge of himself that he reveals to us. And I guess what he's trying to get across there is when your mind gets blown with how big God is, and we'll come to this when we look at the sort of science thing in a few weeks' time, don't worry if you've got questions and you can't always answer them. If you could have a full measure of God and understand everything about God, you would be God. Uh, somebody else said, a knowledge of God is infinite because it's the knowledge of an infinite being. Uh, I think from my experience, and I'm young and I'm still learning loads, but the more I read and think about God, the more I realize I don't know him and the more there is to learn. And that's what's so astonishing about the Christian faith is you can be a young child and you can know God in a very real way. He's my father, Abba. And you can be a great theologian. I think I mentioned Karl Barth the other week when he was asked, what's the most profound thought you've ever had of God? And he said that God loves me. There you've got two poles of intellect, a very young child and a great scholar, but neither of them have fully got a measure of God. Of course not. A slightly long question, but I think when we have unanswered questions and we think, well, how can God have existed before anything else and everything else was created, the difference is that God is very different to his world that he created. And that's how he can exist without anything else. Um, let's just move on. We're going to go for about another 15 minutes or so, and then um, we'll stop for the day and we can uh, carry on talking. But just a little bit on uh, why was Genesis written? And in this, we'll try and answer the question of perhaps who wrote Genesis. Uh, some people think that Genesis was just another myth. I'll tell you why. There are lots of similarities between um, ancient Near Eastern mythologies and Genesis chapter 1. Uh, things like uh, creation stories, things like flood stories, and you can read ancient mythologies very similar to creation. So some people say the writer of uh, Genesis is probably just writing another myth, just like all the others. Other people argue, uh, I'm going to come to this, I'm, gonna, I'm persuaded that Moses wrote uh, Genesis, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, we read in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses wrote down everything the Lord said to him. So that might help you a little bit. Um, Exodus 24, verse 4. Other people argue, well, Moses was serving in Pharaoh's court. And of course, Pharaoh's court would be the place where these great mythologies were thrown around. And so uh, Moses would have heard some of these mythologies. He would have learned them. And then he thought, oh, I'm going to write my own one. This might make me famous. This is what some people will argue. Let me tell you why I think that's ridiculous. Uh, most ancient Near Eastern mythologies, these myth stories, contain what are called theogonies. That is accounts of the genesis or the birth of the gods. So these myths all say there was a point where the gods were born. How does Moses, if he's the writer, declare in his myth, as it's so called? 
He doesn't say anything about the genesis or the birth of God. He declares in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. There's a huge difference between these ancient myths and the apparent myth of Genesis 1. The second thing is, if you read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you'll see tons and tons and tons of physical facts. Apparently there are 64 geographical terms, 88 personal names, and 21 specific cultural objects, which you'll find many of them exist in a museum today. There's huge differences between Genesis chapter 1 and these ancient myths, so I think we can have confidence that Genesis 1 is not a myth. But to answer the question of why was Genesis written, think about the ancient Near East. This was a place of real fear. It was a place where people were searching for meaning and identity. Well, if Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch, and I'm persuaded that he was, think about his life. He had escaped from Egypt. He had led God's people into the promised land, or to the edge of the promised land. But we know that whole generation fell in the wilderness because they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, the book of Numbers, because they disobeyed God. But the next generation, through Joshua, did go into the promised land. And Moses wrote the Pentateuch primarily for that first or second generation Israelite in the wilderness. Now think about it. If you were an Israelite living in Canaan, you wouldn't have been living in a spiritual vacuum. You would have been surrounded by the Canaanite gods, hundreds of them. Jeremiah chapter 8 says, this is speaking, uh, God is speaking in anger on his people. And he says, they will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. Here, this is speaking of God's people who'd got into the promised land but forgotten God, and they started doing what all the nations around them were doing, worshipping created things, not the creator. And many of the things that the ancient people would have worshipped were the sun, the moon, and the stars, and God's people started doing that. So why does he write Genesis? He's writing Genesis in part to give the Israelites confidence that these false gods that many of them are turning to are not true gods at all. They are creations, They're not gods. But more positively, he's trying to encourage this first or second generation of Israelites that they worship the living God. I said that the ancient Near East was a place of fear, a place of searching for identity and meaning. Think about our culture today. Is it actually any different? We all have fears. We're all searching for meaning and identity. And that's why Genesis 1 is such a rich chapter for you and I, because it declares astonishing truths of who God is in a world where there are all sorts of other truths and philosophies that you could follow. But the writer is wanting us to understand one thing, that Genesis 1 is about God. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you'll see 25 times the word God If you look at all the verbs in Genesis chapter 1, almost all of them, God is the subject. Uh, God saw, God said, God called. What we see all the way through Genesis chapter 1 is there's really one lesson that the writer is trying to get across to us. He's trying to get across, this is a chapter all about God. I think so often when we get passages of the scriptures wrong, And this is true, not just Genesis 1, but the whole of the Bible. It's because we primarily make the chapter about us. And we forget that it's actually about God. Yes, it's a word speaking to us, but all of the Bible is about God. And we mustn't forget that. I'm convinced that 
Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific account of the creation of the world. And I think I could be persuaded too that it's not necessarily a literal account of the creation of the world. Now, some will disagree with that. Uh, if you're going to hang me, you've got to wait till next week to give me a chance to defend myself before you do. We will have different views on this. But I don't think the writer in Genesis 1 is wanting us to focus on science. The writer is helping us in Genesis 1 to focus on God. And there are tons of questions that we will have that aren't answered. But the writer doesn't seem bothered by that. He doesn't seem worried by it. But one truth that he does want to declare is that this is a theological chapter. It's a chapter all about God. Well, just as I come to a close, think about if you were living in the ancient Near East with all these pagan gods. The sun, moon, and stars were all rival deities. People worshipped them as gods. And yet, what does Genesis 1 declare? That God has no rival. In the beginning, he was. In the ancient Near East, many animals were seen as gods. But what does Genesis chapter 1 declare? God created the animals. They're not gods, they're creations. In the ancient Near East, people feared the sea. And there were many godlike characters or gods believed to live in the sea. What does Genesis 1 declare? God created the sea and he filled it, teeming with wildlife. In the ancient Near East, the gods were, inf- they were fallible and they were capricious. But in Genesis 1, we see a God who is unchanging and a God who is good. In the ancient Near East, it was believed that man's birth was an afterthought. But Genesis 1, and we'll see this in week 4, declares that God created man in his own image, far from being an accident. In the ancient Near East, men were deified. Um, There was an ancient sun god called Ra. You know the name Pharaoh? That ancient sun god, the name Ra, is in right in the middle of that word Pharaoh. They took the name of an ancient god and they put it into the name of a man, Pharaoh, because they worshipped the pharaohs. But Genesis 1 declares it's not God, it's not man who is God, it declares that it's the living God who is God. Genesis chapter 1, sorry, the ancient Near East believed that man works so the gods could rest. What does Genesis 1 teach us? God works so that we can rest. And finally, the ancient Near East believed that the world came into being through magic. But Genesis 1 declares the world came into being because God spoke. So if you were an Israelite living amongst all these false philosophies and these pagan gods, you needed confidence that there was one true living God and he was the God that you're to worship. Genesis 1 would have been a massive encouragement to you. And that's why I think this is a great chapter for you and I, because we live in a world full of false gods. There are choices every day of who we will worship, what we will worship, where we will find our identity, where we will find our meaning. And Genesis chapter 1 says you'll find it in God. So rather than Moses serving in Pharaoh's courts and deciding, I'm going to make up a myth, just like the other myths that I've heard, perhaps uh, Moses was in Pharaoh's court And he had awareness of the myths that were surrounding these pagan gods. But that made him all the more confident in his God. The God who rescued his people out of Egypt. Who's the same God who will rescue you and I. I hope that as you perhaps continue in the next few weeks and you read through Genesis 1 and 2. You'll allow these incredible chapters just to blow your mind with just how big God is. 
but also you'll recognize what the incredible privilege you and I have that we can know God personally. I think these are amazing chapters and I look forward to looking at them with us all in the weeks to come. Amen.